1: Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them Ahab served Baal a little but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. They entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to them who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, search and see there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer us sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those who might give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin in those days the lord began to cut off parts of israel ezael defeated them throughout the territory of israel from the jordan eastward all the land of gilead the gadites the reubenites and the manassites from Aroer, which is in the valley of arnon that is gilead and bashan now the rest of the acts of jehu and all that he did and all his might Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years.
0: This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Uh, Well, let me add to the welcomes that you have already received. Uh, So glad uh, to welcome you if you're gathered here in the building with us this morning. Uh, Likewise, a welcome to those who are gathering online as well. Uh, If you're new here, uh, my name is Dave. Uh, It is my honour to serve as the lead pastor of this church. Uh, I'm married to Rowena. We've got three kids, Sam, Tom and Beth. Sam's about to graduate from primary school. That makes me feel really old. Yeah, let's give him a cheer. Should have done that at the first service, the one that he was here for. No, probably shouldn't have. That was the right move. Mental note, father of an almost teenager. Uh, Hey, uh, I hope and trust that this morning uh, you'll be encouraged. uh, Whether you've been part of this church for a long time, whether you've known Jesus for a long time, or whether you're new to this church and new to the things of Jesus, our hope is that you'll get to know Jesus better uh, as a result of gathering with us this morning. Hey, just a couple of uh, very brief updates uh, before we uh, dig into God's Word. Uh, The first is just regarding the new COVID rules coming in the next couple of weeks here in Queensland. Um, I know many people have been uh, conscious of what's going on in our state and likewise praying, uh, understanding what that might mean for different people. Uh, One of the things in Queensland is that one of the few places that unvaccinated people have an exemption uh, is places of worship. Um, that's uh, a good thing in, in many ways. Uh, however, uh, we are a, a, a church, we are a place of worship, but we meet in a cinema. Uh, and cinemas, just like pretty much every other business and organisation and community group, uh, are subject to the passports and mandates and so on. Uh, and so just, I guess, a couple of quick updates. The first thing is just to say thank you. Uh, I'm really thankful for a whole bunch of displays of unity and love shown in this season, uh, as we work out how to navigate the complex circumstances that we find ourselves in, Uh, for for a couple of months, we've put out the call, let's pray. Uh, Let's pray that even in the midst of a season where there's discomfort and even disagreement, that we would remain united as the people of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see many examples of that unity uh, and pray that that would continue to be displayed in and through our midst. Um, Our hope, uh, and we're having some conversations both with the venue, uh, the Palace Barracks, uh, as well as Queensland Health, Um, our hope is to be able to get an exemption for our 8.30am service and not require um, passports to be shown at that opening service Uh, Our, um, that's not our decision, Uh, that depends on this business that we meet in as a church and likewise an official exemption from Queensland Health. Uh, and so can I invite you to be praying um, for those conversations uh, and negotiations? Uh, I know many people have been praying in that regard. Uh, one thing to also uh, pray about and give thanks to God for is our night service, which has been meeting underground uh, for the last few months in Wilston, in an old church there, um, uh, Uh, We're about to move uh, to another church just across the road from here, the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Uh, From next, there's no church today. The venue we were in is not available. Uh, But from next Sunday, from 5:30 p.m., we will be in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, just on the other side of Roma Street. Uh, And we thank God for that because we've got space to double the size of what's happening in our night service. And it is a place of worship. And so regardless of how negotiations go for the morning services, um, uh, we are able uh, to have a passport-free service in our night service. That is really, really good Uh, news uh, and also opportunities to build community um, after church on site. Uh, and so thank God for that and pray for those transitions as they take place. Um, hey, the final thing is um, Christmas service is coming up. Uh, Mike's already got a bit of hype beast up and out there, but who's excited for Christmas services? Yeah. There we go. Hey, uh, 19th of December is our Christmas service, uh 8:30, 10:30, 5:30. That'll be our final service for the year, and we'll be back on the 9th of January but just an invitation to go for it when it comes to Christmas. I think it is the easiest time in the year to convince loved ones in your life uh, to come to church. And so can you pray uh, that people will come along? Uh, Can you pray that you will have boldness uh, to invite your friends, your family, your neighbours, your colleagues, even your enemies, they're all welcome. Uh, Invite them along and let's pray that God would move Um, miraculously, uh, as the gospel goes out uh, this Christmas. Hey, uh, I'm going to pray now. Uh, I'm going to pray using a traditional Advent prayer that's prayed in the second Sunday of this Christmas season. Uh, Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, Learn and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. Well, I'm confident if we were to do a a poll of people that are gathering with us today in this room and likewise online is that we would all know stories of injustice that we are stirred by, that perhaps we're even angered by, stories where innocent people are hurt, raped, killed. And the story of injustice is that perpetrators seem so often to get away with it and perhaps even to get out of any consequences because of perhaps a legal loophole. There might be stories that are really close to you personally and... Yet regardless of how close a story is to you, even more distant stories, when we learn the details of them, we are stirred by the injustice that we witness in this world. You know, in church last week we heard from one king's a story of injustice. Naboth was a righteous man and he refused to be bullied by an evil king and so the king's wife, She framed him, and while he was celebrating amongst his family, with his community, false witnesses were suddenly brought forward against him at her command, and he, along with his sons, were dragged out and stoned to death in his vineyard. His property then was confiscated by those who murdered him, who got to enjoy the fruit of their injustice." Where is God during that incident with Naboth and his sons? You know, maybe that is the question that you ask when you are confronted by injustice in this world. It's a good question. It's a right question. If God is a God of justice, where is God when the weak are oppressed, when the innocent suffer? And when the wicked prosper. You got the question? Where is God when there is injustice? That's the question we'll consider today as we continue our series called The Coming King. We've been looking at one kings. Today we transition into two kings. And uh, we kind of began this series before one and two kings, framed with the greatest king in Israel's history in the Old Testament, his name, King David. And we saw the promises that God made to David, a man who was after God's own heart. And that that one would come from his family who would build a house for God. And that one would come from his family who would rule forever. Someone from the family of David would be on the throne and rule God's people forever. We saw in the opening week of this series, his son, King Solomon, who was wise, who was wealthy, And yet, we see the way in which his worship was corrupted. We see as a result of his infidelity that the kingdom after him is divided. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Week number two, we saw Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam, the the, the king in the north, and Rehoboam, the king in the south, some, some, some okay moments, but again, we saw unfaithfulness from God's kings. Failure to lead God's people as God would have them led. And then last week, we saw King Ahab in the northern kingdom, considered by some to perhaps be the most wicked king in Israel's history. And so today, we're going to focus in on the reign of King Jehu also in the northern kingdom, not long after the reign of King Ahab. Now, if you didn't notice it in the extract of our Bible reading that we had read out a few moments ago, graphic warning. It's a pretty disturbing couple of chapters to read. And yet, in response to the question, where is God in the midst of injustice? 2 Kings 9 and 2 Kings 10 gives us a glimpse of God at work to bring justice. God is a God of justice, and the sins from previous generations will be held to account during King Jehu's reign. If you've got a Bible... Keep it out, keep it open, 2 Kings chapter 9 and 2 Kings chapter 10. Uh, Again, to echo Mike's invitation, if you don't own a Bible, please see our team at the info desk. We'd love to gift you with one after the service. But in 2 Kings chapter 9, we meet Jehu. He was a senior army officer. And we meet him at the beginning drafting battle plans. And yet his drafting of plans is interrupted to hear an urgent word from a messenger. Pick it up with me in 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. So, he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on Jehu's head, saying to him, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel.' And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants and prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabar, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled, dropped the message, anoint the king, and run. Jehu is anointed king of Israel. And, and God interrupts Jehu's plans as an army officer and gives him a different set of battle plans. A mission? Of vengeance. You know, Jehu goes back into the, into the other officers and he's kind of got a bit of a strange look on his face and they say, hey, what, what, what went on? What did this madman want? And he tells them what happened and he kind of even does that with a laugh and yet all the men fall to their knees crying out, long live the king, long live the king. They're in the presence of the Lord's anointed. And in response to the rebellion that's taking place in Israel, judgment is coming. And we must notice that it is instigated and commanded by God. Jehu is God's king. And Jehu is God's instrument. And Jehu wastes no time carrying out four acts of bloody judgment, four acts of bloody judgment. Where is God in the midst of injustice? Well, at least here in 2 Kings 9 and 10, we see God working through his instrument to bring about justice where there has been injustice. I'm going to read through these four Scenes of bloody judgment relatively quickly, but the first one I want you to see is judgment on Joram. Judgment on Joram. King Joram was the son of King Ahab, and King Joram is first on Jehu's hit list. Pick it up with me in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 16. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahazah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horse and send it to meet them. And let, them, let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman, who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, He reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Now, quick aside, is there anyone out there who with a fast and furious driving reputation? Anyone? Anyone? Or well, point to someone who has one. There we go, we've got some more hands going up for that one. Jehu has a reputation for fast and furious driving. He's known, even from a distance, by the watchman looking on. The messengers aren't coming back, but the watchman goes, hey, hang on. That could only be Jehu. Look at the way... He handles his chariot. And so verse 21, the two messages haven't come back. And so Joram's like, well, maybe I need to go out there. Look at it. Verse 21, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace can there be? So long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. King Joram immediately realises what's about to happen and turns to flee. But Jehu draws his bow, we read, shoots him between the shoulder blades and the arrow sinks into his heart. There is no mistake about what's just happened... King Joram says to the the anointed King Jehu, is it peace? Jehu says, Well what, what peace can there be? Can there be? With the behaviour that is taking place in this nation, with the infidelity, with the unfaithfulness, with the rampant sin on repeat in these people. The death of King Joram is not a murder from a madman. This is justice through God's instrument, King Jehu. A couple of verses further down, it says, verse 25, Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made his pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. It's bloody. It's gruesome. And yet this is God's judgment. This is justice for the innocent death of Naboth. The Lord made the pronouncement, verse 25. In accordance with the word of the Lord, verse 26. God has raised up Jehu to be his instrument of justice. First, judgment on Joram. Second, we see judgment on Jezebel. Jezebel as we've read, if you've been tracking with the narrative, is an evil woman uh, described by a friend of mine as the most evil woman in all of Scripture. Have a look at what it says in Two Kings chapter nine, verse thirty. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. She's classy. She's a classy killer, got the makeup on, getting herself all dolled up, kind of even understanding the inevitable, about to die, I'm going to look good, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory and yet here's the thing, outward adornment in the face of death won't cover up the wickedness and deceit that she is known for verse 31, and as Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace? You, Zimri, murderer of your master? Jehu refuses to even talk to her. Verse 32, uh, and he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered, uh, spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. Just, just a quick death and carry on with your lunch. And he said this, verse 34, "'See now to this cursed woman and bury her, "'for she is a king's daughter. "'But when they went to bury her, "'they found no more of her than the skull and the feet "'and the palms of her hands. "'When they came back and told him, he said, "'This is the word of the Lord.'" which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, in the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel, this is brutal. And yet, as horrific as hearing that story is, this is not murder. This is justice. In fulfillment of God's word through the prophet Elijah. Doesn't make it any easier to read. I doubt we're supposed to take great joy in the blood being spattered on the wall and on the horses. It's confronting. Judgment on. Joram is confronting, the judgment on Jezebel is confronting. The next thing we see is judgment on Ahab, judgment on Ahab. Now Ahab has, is already dead and Joram, his son, is already dead but the rest of the family is still around. So in chapter 10 we learn that Ahab had 70 sons. So Jehu writes to them and Effectively, he says, "Hey, pick one. Pick, pick one. Pick one of the sons. Make him king, and let the battle begin." But they refuse to choose one. So look what happens. Chapter ten, verse seven. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. It's confronting. <laughs> 70 heads in baskets. But more, more than that, it's not just the 70 heads of the sons. The, the judgment on the whole household is total. Have a look at verse 11, jump down. It says, so Jehu struck down all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel. All his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. Again, the disturbing passages of Scripture to read and reflect on this fine Sunday morning. And yet, this is God's justice. In 2 Kings 9 and 2 Kings 10, against injustice. Against the wicked rule of the previous generation. And so finally, we see judgment on Baal judgment on Baal, and in particular, his prophets and his worshippers. Now, it's interesting as you read this one, we're only going to read a few verses from the section, I'd encourage you to read the rest in your own time, but it seems at the beginning of this story that Jehu is, is going rogue. Have a look at verse 18, it says, Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much i remember reading this uh, a week ago kind of getting around i'm like wait well, hang on i thought he was about to take down the prophets of baal what's going on well this is all part of his cunning plan to bring about judgment And so Jehu gathers, we read in the next few verses, he gathers all the prophets of Baal, this pagan god that has crept into the worship of Israel. He gathers all the prophets. He gathers all the worshippers of Baal. The temple is filled. They're identified as those who worship Baal. Eighty soldiers are stationed outside And then, track down to verse 25, it says So, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So, when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it, and they demolished the pillar of Baal. And demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Became a dunny. So decimated the prophets, the worshippers, even Baal himself, that this formerly revered house of worship is now a toilet. And by this stage in the narrative, blood is everywhere... You can't actually keep up with the high body counts throughout these chapters. There's some numbers, but there's way more than the numbers that are mentioned. We have slaughter after slaughter. Question. How are we meant to feel by this point? Does this make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Maybe even embarrassed by it? You know, wish you'd invited a, your friend to church a different week. <laughs> Welcome those who are new. Glad your friend didn't come today. But here's the thing it ought to bring us joy. Joy? Yeah, joy. Why? Because these two chapters demonstrate that God, even in these moments, God is aware of all the abuse and all the injustices in his world and God will deal with it nothing escapes his notice whether it's genocide in Rwanda the Holocaust in Europe oppressive regimes like the Taliban injustice in our own history here in Australia injustice perhaps even in our own land today The injustice of government-sanctioned slaughter of thousands of innocents in the womb, right here in Australia. Nothing escapes God's notice. God says he will one day deal with all injustice and all those perpetrators of injustice. You know, they may think they've gotten away with it, but nothing and no one escapes from God You know what, at times as we kind of take a step back and look at history, as we look at biblical history, as we look at history more recently, it might feel like God's justice is slow in coming. But in the end, we can be sure that God will, once and for all, show His justice. And so we rejoice, even in the midst of the blood, the gore, the uncomfortable text that we've read this morning... We rejoice when we see it happen through King Jehu. This passage also reminds us that God will deal with all his enemies in the world. God will. You know, last week we saw Israel's worst king, Ahab, and his truly evil queen, Jezebel. We saw them murder the Lord's servants and persecute God's people. And while there's glimpses of God's grace in Ahab's life, God ultimately cannot tolerate the mocking of his name and the oppression of his people forever. God will, in the end, deal with his enemies. You know, Naboth may have been like dirt to Ahab and Jezebel, but the Lord knows his name. And God also knows your name when you suffer injustice. And so we rejoice knowing that God's judgment against injustice is coming and it will be pure, it will be just, it will be holy and it will be true. But this passage also serves as a warning for us all that there are consequences for idol worship. You know, as the worshippers of Baal gathered and the net closed in around them, so too the secrets of every heart will one day be exposed. For all those who've trusted in idols instead of the true and living God, God's holy wrath will fall in fury. For those who loved money, for those who loved power, for those who loved pleasure, for those who live for the things of this world instead of God, judgment day is coming. Hell is a reality. Secrets will be revealed. And yet we rejoice in the just judgment in Jehu's day, knowing that judgment and hell awaits for all of those who fail to turn away from idols and to trust and serve the true and living God. You see, God's judgment, through God's instrument, King Jehu, on Joram, on Jezebel, On Ahab and on Baal is a brief snapshot and foretaste of his justice to come. And so we rejoice. And so we rejoice. I want to conclude, though, with a comparison of two similar but also very different kings. King Jehu, and many years later, King Jesus. The first, the imperfect, conquering king. His name, Jehu, King Jehu. As we've read throughout these chapters, perhaps you've noticed that even in the midst of the role in judgment, there's little reminders of God's promise that has been made and how this moment of judgment is a fulfillment of that that Jehu really is an instrument being used by God to bring about justice. Here's, here's another one that we haven't yet read, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 10. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. The imperfect, conquering king, King Jehu, shows that he is part of God's plans, is obedient to God, obedient to God's word in executing judgment in response to the word from the prophets like Elijah. And so what's the assessment of King Jehu's reign? Well, it's mixed uh, first there 's positive things that the Lord actually says about king jehu 's reign. Have a look at chapter 10 verse 30. It says, "And the Lord said to Jehu, "Because you have done well it was a commendation because you 've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of israel he 's commended jehu you 've done well you've done what I've asked you to do. That's not not necessarily a a commendation on all of the means by which he went about things, but it is certainly a commendation that in the eyes of the Lord, Jehu has done well in exacting justice on the house of Ahab. This is God's instrument of justice. He's commended. But notice, though... (laughs) Either side of verse 30, some not so positive assessments on Jehu. Look at verse 29. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, there they are again, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. Verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord The God of Israel, with all his heart, he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Jehu is commended, and yet Jehu is also condemned. He clearly was an imperfect king. He continues to bow down to these golden calves. And what's even worse is he not only fails to turn from the sins of those who've gone before, but he's causing the people, Israel, to continue in sin. He's a leader not worth following in the way that he continues to go after sin. He's a man, we read, of religious zeal, and yet he's a man within a compromise. He's a man that judges the idols of Baal, but conceals the idols of his heart. He is condemned. For his judgment. Sorry, he's commended for his judgment, but condemned for his hypocrisy. I don't know how you feel kind of reading that assessment of King Jehu uh, in the book of James. James uses the word double minded. It feels a little bit like the double minded man. And perhaps even as you read some of those countering (laughs) commended and condemned kind of in the same breath, You perhaps can think of um, people in your world that are double-minded, but more than that, maybe you can even think of yourself and the way in which double-mindedness hits close to home. Perhaps you are prone to judge the world rightly and yet blind to your own sin. Perhaps you're prone to publicly affirm Christian biblical marriage, and you're secretly addicted to pornography. Perhaps you're prone to wage war with the surrounding idols of our age, while making peace with your own sin and worshipping the idols of your own heart. You know, the consequences for the Northern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Israel, we get a glimpse of it. In the next verse, in chapter 10, verse 32, it says, In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Without division after Solomon of north and south, it's not going to be too long before the north will have bit after bit cut away. Where the north will be in exile and where the north will never return where the north will be so mixed up with the nations around it that it will be difficult to discern who even are the people of God. You know, the descendants of the northern tribes are the Samaritans. When you get to the New Testament, you can understand some of the the weirdness in the way God's people relate to the Samaritans because they are kind of related to the Samaritans. They're kind of cousins. They kind of have the same historical lineage, but they've been so corrupted by idol worship They've been so mixed in with the gods of the nations that they no longer discernibly look like the people of God. There are significant consequences, not just in Jehu, but the generations that are to come after him, that bit by bit, the Lord begins to cut off parts of Israel. For all of the high points and the commendation that King Jehu receives, he's condemned. He is the imperfect conquering king and we con- contrast him with the perfect conquering king Jesus the coming king we see in Jesus that in his life he wasn't compromised we see that in his life he was not double-minded a foot in both worlds We see in Jesus' life, one who lived a perfect life, who always was commended by his father for walking in perfect obedience, righteousness, and justice. Jesus, the perfect conquering king, lives a life of no compromise, a perfect life. Jesus is not... Deserving of condemnation. You see, here's the thing. Like Jehu, even if we've got some good things that we've done, all of us have things against us that we deserve condemnation for. But Jesus, He is not deserving of condemnation. And yet, this king went to the cross, had a crown of thorns put upon his head. And we see that at the cross, Jesus, the one who doesn't deserve condemnation, was condemned on behalf of sinners on behalf of rebels, on behalf of idol worshippers, on behalf of people like you and I. Jesus graciously dies the death that we deserve. He is condemned in our place. You know what? Death could not hold him down. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. We were read in Romans chapter one that this even proves that Jesus is the son of David, the conquering king who will come and rule forever. Every other king in the lineage before Jesus, every other descendant of David lived, maybe had some high moments, but then is dead and buried in a tomb. And yet Jesus' tomb is empty. He is the everlasting, ever ruling king of kings. And this Jesus gives resurrection life eternal life to all who would trust in him, to all who would turn to him. He is the conquering king, but he is the perfect conquering king in every possible way. You know, um, sometimes I've heard it said and even some people suggest on these passages, and maybe this is even how you've rationalised 2 Kings 9 and 10, you've kind of gone, yeah, well, the God of the Old Testament is just a little bit, mm, a little bit more embarrassing than the God of the New Testament, Right? And yet the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. (laughs) It's not not a different God. It's not two different gods, the bad God and the good God. He's always a good God. He's always a just God. He's always a righteous God. His decisions are 100% accurate on every single occasion. You see, the, the concluding chapters of the Bible, I'll get you to turn to Revelation chapter 19, we actually catch a glimpse of the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the only true and living God, the the, the God who is one but three, three persons within the one Godhead, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and what we see in Revelation 19 might feel a bit uncomfortable as well but we see a celebration of God's justice and God's judgment. The great prostitute, not just Jezebel, not just the ways in which she led people into wickedness and the way in which she took the blood of God's servants. But we see at the end, there is a celebration over God's true and just judgment. Verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. There's a, there's a celebration, You almost go back to Jezebel and kind of, we celebrate that she's been mauled by dogs. We celebrate the just, true, righteous, holy judgment of God. Hallelujah. Verse four, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We praise God because He's the God of justice. We fear God because we know that He's the God of justice. We rightly revere Him. We rightly turn from our sin. We trust in our Saviour. We take hold of the redemption and the, the declaration of no longer condemned that is offered through Jesus, the one we read about in the next section, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at these final words here from uh, chapter 19, verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus and he is coming in justice. He is coming to put all the wrong things right again. He will come. We celebrate him now. We long for his appearing and we turn to him now while we still can. You see, the war that we wage we are not called to do the things that Jehu is called to do. We are called to entrust vengeance to God. We are called to allow God to bring about justice in his time. And our weapon is the word of God, is the scriptures, is the the, the word of Christ and who he is and what he has done. And so right now, as we engage with a world that is far from God, we open the scriptures. We point to the reality of God's judgment. We point to the, the reality of God's saviour, this perfect, conquering kin, king who graciously offers forgiveness to all who would but turn to him. You know, as we get closer to Christmas in these coming weeks, may this be a season where not only do we remember that first coming of Christ, but we get ready ourselves for the second coming of Christ that we'd likewise call others to put their trust in him the just righteous true king of kings he will come he will have his way he will get the glory and we're invited to trust him now church would you stand as we pray together Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are confronted by the things that we've read this morning. Uh, Help us to sit in that discomfort and help us to be reminded of the reality of a need for justice in this world. Father, as we read about King Jehu, we we see a man that was compromised. As we see things that he's commended for, we also see things that he's worthy of condemnation for. Father, we all feel that double-mindedness. And Father, we ask that this morning you'd help us to turn away from the things of this world, help us to be real with our sin and help us to bring it to our Saviour. We thank you that Jesus is is better than Jehu. We thank you so much that he he is the perfect conquering king. We thank you that he lived a life without compromise. We thank you that he died a death of a condemned criminal for us and for our sake and for our salvation. We thank you that he rose again and he is the King of Kings. He is the everlasting ruler. Thank you for the new life that he promises to all who trust in him. Father, give us eyes to see and rejoice in your justice. Uh, we long for your justice uh, to cover this earth. And we long to see Christ ruling and reigning. We know that he is worthy. And so, Father, would you help us this day to trust him? And, Father, would you help us in this season to prepare not only to meet him ourselves but to encourage others to likewise find the declaration of no condemnation by turning to Christ now in this life while there is time. Father, we ask that as we are sent out from this place that you would help us to fear you, but also be thankful for what Christ has done for us, that we can know you and be known by you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.